So chapter 25 of Genesis. So there's nothing new under the sun. People today are no different than the people who lived in the days of Abraham. And they were no different than the people who lived in the days of Noah. And they were no different than the people who lived in the days of Adam and Eve. And each of us, we are all born with this innate understanding that we're special. We think, we know that we are created for greatness. And every one of us is born in transition. And our chapter from today, chapter 25, focuses in on both of these things, personal greatness and the truth, and the truth of transitional lives. Look at verses 7 through 11. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. And Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. And after the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lahai Roy. This chapter transitions the focus from Abraham to Isaac and then to Jacob. God has spent 13 chapters focusing in on 175 years of human history by focusing in on this man, Abraham. He covered over a thousand years of human history in the first 11 chapters, rarely using more than two chapters for any individual, including Noah. And then he pens 13 chapters on Abraham. Abraham was special. But it's the why that he was special that we need to determine. And by doing so, we can determine if we are special, if, if we have that something that Abraham did that made him special. So, are people important? Are you important? We think that we are, but are we? And if we are, why are we important? Well, the Bible tells us of our importance. We are created in the image of God, Genesis 2, 7. And we are told in Psalm 139, verse 14, that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Humans have value, so much so that God told Noah after the flood, if anyone takes a human life, that person's life will also be taken by human hands. For God made humans in his own image. And this is after the fall. Genesis 9-6. God created man in his own image. We may be created of the same stuff as the rest of creation, the same building blocks, the same atoms, but we are created different than everything else. We, we were formed by the very finger of God, and he breathed his life into us, and we are created in his image. But man was never made immortal. Only God is immortal, as told to us in 1 Timothy verses, or chapter 6, verse 16. Man was created spiritually immortal, but physically, he was created from dust and not immortal. The sin of Adam, which brought about the spiritual death of all mankind, didn't bring about the physical death of mankind, at least not in the way that you're thinking. 
when man was created and then placed in the garden, we're told, in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Genesis 2, 9. And then God gave man this command. You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die, Genesis 2, 17. But God created man to eat from the tree of life in order that we would remain as he was created and live physically the same as he was created spiritually in constant communion with God. So what qualities did Abraham possess that made him so special that God spent 13 chapters to tell us his life? Why was Abraham so special? Why was he so special that of the multiplied billions of people that lived on the earth, we know his name even now? What was it that made him so special? Nothing. And we don't get this. You see, we humans, we so often, we celebrate the wrong things concerning ourselves. We're gonna, we will watch hours of footage concerning a man who was able to play ball better than most. We'll spend hours reading about people who are better at killing others, better at science, better at math, better at anything. And we'll even spend hours or years learning about men who are exceptionally gifted in the ministry to the Lord. And at the same time, we will, will waste hours, days, years, decades of our life pursuing gifts from the Lord that don't make us special. Because we actually think that they are the things that make us special. There was nothing special about Abraham. He was just like all other humans from ages past to present. And the why concerning his inclusion in the Bible and what made him special enough to get this amount of space in the Bible, that is found in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, where we're told he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And this is what made him special. He believed God. He had faith. He hoped against hope. But even here, we get this wrong. Because Abraham wasn't special in his faith. He wasn't the Arnold Schwarzenegger of faith, building his faith, exercising his faith, perfecting his faith. The faith that he had, it was a gift from God to him. And when we look back over the last 13 chapters that we've read, we see that most of the space given there is to cover the events of this man's life. That They're all centered around the covenant promises that God made to him and the fulfilling of those promises and the revelation of the character of the God that first called this man, made these promises, enacted the covenant, and demonstrated his righteousness to this man. And by way of him... To us, God promised a lineage to Abraham, a heritage that he would be able, that would, I'm sorry, the heritage that would be able to trace their roots back to that man. And he looked forward to this heritage. And they, they would look back to him. But the heritage that Abraham was looking forward to, that we look back upon, is not found in the man Abraham but in the Savior that would come from his heritage. 
Because he, that man, he is special. And the life of Abraham is just like ours. And it began with a lineage back in Genesis 11:27, when we're told that Haran fathered Abraham. Abraham was born just like the rest of us, and he grew up just like the rest of us, and he got old just like the rest of us. And after the incident where Isaac became a willing sacrifice for his father, we are given a new lineage in Genesis 22. And that lineage is for the preparation, for the transition from Abraham to Isaac. Abraham was old. His body was wearing out. And this is the God-ordained cycle of life. For everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, Ecclesiastes 1, 1 and 2. And the lineage given to us at the end of chapter 22 is given as a preparation for the next season in this life, in this man's life, the time for his wife, Sarah, to die. And then after the death of Sarah, Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah, and she bore him Zimram, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. And Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Ashram, Latushim, and, and Lemon. The sons of Midian were Ephar, Ephar, Hanak, Abadiah, and Alda. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubine, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac, eastward to the east country. Genesis 25, 1 through 6. And then Abraham dies. And then we're told of the death of the son of his flesh, an Ishmael, who had fathered 12 sons in verse 17. And then beginning in verse 19, we transition from Abraham to Isaac. And from the beginning, we see that the life of this man, who was the promised son of Abraham, who was the immaculate conception and birth son of Sarah, the son through whom all the promises of God would come, we see that his life wouldn't be what we call easy or even ideal. First, he was single for 40 years of his life. And this wasn't normal. wasn't normal then and is not normal now. But because of, his, of the will of God in this man's life, he remained single for 40 years, even though he had a desire to marry and have a family. And then, as we saw in chapter 24, God had predestined a woman to be his wife, just as he predestined us to be the bride of Christ. And the life of Isaac, though, it didn't become a bed of roses once he got married. Rebecca, though she was beautiful and did comfort Isaac after the death of his mother, she was barren. And she was barren for 20 years. And in verse 21, we're told, And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebecca, his wife, conceived. The thing I want to ask you, though, is do you actually think that Isaac waited 20 years to pray for his wife? Do you think that's what, that's what the, this is telling us? I don't think so. I'm guessing that he began praying for his wife pretty early on after they figured out that she was barren. See, because Isaac knew the promises that were made to his father by God, that he would make Abraham to be a mighty nation, and that the land that he was wandering in would be given to the offspring, his offspring by God. And God had given him a wife in Rebekah. 
And he didn't suppose that this was a mistake. He didn't suppose, maybe I married the wrong woman. And he didn't go about doing as his dad had done and marrying a second woman. He just trusted in the Lord and he prayed. And saints, what he was praying for was nothing short of a miracle. You see, barren people do not randomly just conceive. Barren is like dead. Barren is barren. Dead is dead. And what Isaac was praying for, and presumably Rebekah as well, was nothing short of impossible. But pray they did, and they could pray in confidence because they knew the God that they were praying to. And knowing who you are praying to, knowing who you have faith in, these are important things to know. Because faith in and of itself, it has no value. And praying to God, whatever that is, has no value either. And even if you tack that name of Jesus on, that can have no value as well. You see, there's a lot of small g gods out there. There's a lot of people named Jesus. And it matters who you are praying to and who you have faith in. I'm married to Tracy. She's my wife, but that doesn't mean that I'm married to all Tracys or that all Tracys are my wife or they're the same. And there's a lot of false religions out there that use that name Jesus and call on a false god. The Mormons pray to Jesus. The JWs pray to Jesus. The Muslims, they believe in Jesus. And all of them have faith in a false god. And all of them pray to a false Jesus. And this matters. Paul touched on this issue in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 20 through 22. He says, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. And this is what I'm talking about with the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses. And I don't want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You can't partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Having faith in God, believing in, the, in Jesus, the God of the Bible, this is the only prayer in faith that matters. And this isn't normal. Nor is it within the ability of man himself to do. Don't think that man can on his own because he is created in the image of God, because he is given logic and reason that he can understand or know God. Two verses. Ecclesiastes 8.17. He says, Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though, um, even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. And then 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. But both of these people, they knew God. And they were special because of this. And they were living testimonies to the grace and the mercy of God in the lives of people. 
that, that he had specifically prepared them for each other as evident in both of their lives, and that he had specifically chosen them for each other. That was tested, testified to you in the matter in which they came together. And they prayed to this God because of the promises of God. The promise specifically made to them, handed down through Abraham in Genesis 12 too. So they prayed for the impossible. And as we're told in verse 21, God heard his prayer and she conceived. But there was trouble in the womb. The children struggled together within her. And she said, if this is, the, if this is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, verse 22. And this is an important insight into the character and faith of Rebecca. She knew that something was not right in her womb. And instead of fretting, instead of thinking the worst, instead of just going to her husband, explain to me, Isaac, why this is happening. She does the illogical. She goes to the one who actually performed the miracle of her conception. She inquired of the Lord. Verses 23 and 24. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. And when her days were given, um, when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. Now, verse 24, that's given to us as an explanation of verse 23. In other words, she didn't understand what, what God told her, at least not at the moment. But the answer to the miracle and the seeming troubled pregnancy was revealed upon delivery. Esau and Jacob. And from the beginning, these twins were not like most twins. They were different from each other. Completely different. They didn't seem to share any characteristics with each other at all. Esau, he loved the outdoors. He was a man's man. Jacob was much more domesticated. And then for the first time in the Bible, we're told that there was a preference given by, by their parents to them. Isaac loved Esau. Rebekah loved Jacob, verse 28. And then this chapter, it just skips ahead to this very random incident between these two men, verses 29 through 34. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I'm exhausted. Therefore his name is called Edom. And Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. And Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? And Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank, rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Now, we can translate this account from the Hebrew into English, but we really can't actually ever know the voice inflections or even the intent behind these words. It's black and white. So we don't know whether or not Esau was kidding or, I'm sorry, if Isaac was kidding, or if Esau was just being emo, or if he's just using hyperbolic language, we are forced to read these words that are given to us and to try to make sense of the account. And what these words tell us is that Esau said that he was hungry to the point of death, that he wasn't just tired, that he was exhausted. 
And it was at this moment, in this context, that his younger brother decides to take advantage of the situation and withhold that which he could have brought comfort and care to his older brother, namely the food that he prepared. He tells this man who's obviously outwardly hurting, I'd love to help you. Matter of fact, I will help you for a price. And the price that he named was his birthright. And we think, we think that Esau was foolish or irresponsible in all of this. I mean, who in their right mind would sell a multi-million dollar estate for a bowl of soup? Who would do such a thing? Well, think of this situation a little bit different. What if, what if Jacob was on a boat in the ocean? And Esau flounders up to him, obviously on the brink of drowning. Esau then asks to be taken aboard the boat. And, the, re and the, the response? Sure, I'll save you. But first transfer the birthright over to me. If Esau was truly on the brink of drowning, knew that within a few seconds he would for the first and last time be breathing water, what good would a birthright be to him? So was this situation at hand, was this similar? Perhaps. We aren't told for sure. But what we can know and what we do know is that both of these men were very fatally flawed individuals who sinned against each other, but more importantly, sinned against God. And the birth order of these men that was the will of God. He was the one who conceived these men in the womb of their mother, who decided long before there were ever a thought in their parents' mind who they would be, what they would be, and when they would be. And all of this was the preordained will of God. God predetermined that Esau would be firstborn, and because of this would be given the birthright, and that Jacob that he would be the one who would have the birthright. That was the will of God as well. Wait, are you telling me that God planned on these things happening? Is that what you're saying, David? That he knew that Esau would despise his birthright, that Jacob would be heartless and conniving and obtaining that which was not his by birth? Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. And we know this to be true because of what God told Rebekah. The older shall serve the younger. And we are very often shocked by the actions of the heroes of the faith as told to us in the Bible. Shocked by the sin of David and Bathsheba. Shocked by Abraham lying about Sarah. Shocked by the self-indulgent nature of Samson. We are shocked by these accounts. Because we actually think people are good that we have the ability to be good, to do good. And in fact, the truth is, we think that we're better than these saints of old. Oh, we read these accounts and we pat ourselves on the back knowing that I would never cheat on my spouse. I would never live the life like Samson did. We are much better parents than Jacob and Sarah. And we would never deny the Lord three times like Peter either. And for the unregenerate, 
they look at these accounts and they use them as proof that Christianity, Christianity has no value. Because if belief in God can't make these people good, then what good is it? There can't be a God since he can't control or change the nature of people. And that man Esau, between he and Jacob, it's he. It is he when we think of the two. It is he that we think less of. Even though his brother was a liar and a cheat and willingly was, able, was willing to use deceit and treachery, between the two, we still view Esau the worst because he sold his birthright for a bowl of food. And we're right in seeing him in this way. We are meant to view him in this way. And we don't understand why this is such a big deal. We don't understand what it was that made Jacob special and Esau not. Turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. In the book of Hebrews, the author has spent all of chapter 11 telling us of the importance of faith. First, telling us what faith is in verse 1. Faith is an assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And then he listed a myriad of people who lived in faith, by faith, and not just having faith in faith, but having faith in God. And then this chapter, chapter 12 of Hebrews, he tells us the importance of faith in our life. How faith in our lives, how that, how that is the thing that proves that we are special, that we have value. Beginning in verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witness, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Saints, this is our life, and this is the will of God in our life. Our life is not meant to be a day at the beach. It's not supposed to be a summer vacation. It is a race that we must run. This is the life that God intends us to have, the race that is set before us. And in this race, we will not only have the sin that is clinging to us, the slowing us down, but there are weights that we can pick up along the way that will slow us down as well. And those weights, those weights are good things in life, not sinful things in and of themselves, but they're things that will slow us down, hinder us in focusing in on the race that is set before us. And it is those things that we're told not to pick up. And, it, and we're told, if you've picked them up, drop them. And this race, your race, is not against you and other people. We are never meant to be looking left and right as we're running our race. We are never meant to look at other people and laugh as they stumble and fall. Wonder in amazement. At, look at all those weights those guys are trying to carry as we whiz past them. Our race, your race, is against the clock. And it's impossible to win on our own. And quite honestly, we don't like to run. But this race is the reason that we are special, the reason that we have value in life. But then the author gives us the cheat. 
to how to win this race. He tells us how we can win this race, even though it's impossible. He tells us why faith, right faith, is so important in our lives. He says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We don't consider that Jesus had a race, that he ran a race. We don't think that Jesus had faith, that he believed in the Father. He was God. His time on earth was special. It was easy. He was never tempted to pick up weights, never tempted to sin. And that is pure fantasy. Hebrews 4.15, we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And this is why we are to look to him, because he was completely human when he walked the planet for the first time, meaning that he had every opportunity to fall just as we do, only he didn't have a sin nature within him that diminished the reality of his worth. He knew the Father. And he is the reason that you're special. And in the ESV, we're told that he is the founder and perfecter of our faith. But that word founder, that word founder can also be rightly translated as author or originator and even source. And this is why you are special. If you are the elect of God, if you are the elect of God, you are special. And you need to look no further than the fact that you have been adopted into the family of God as proof that you are special. And this really is the thing, the single thing in this life that you are supposed to find your personal self-worth in. Not in your habits, not in your hobbies, not in your talents or your skills. It is the thing that you are supposed to look to, you, to find your value, to understand that this is your contribution to the world. God said of his elect, his children, he said, because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you, I give men in return for you. Peoples in exchange for your life, Isaiah 43, 4. And this is the thing that makes you special. The thing that you should identify yourself in. The thing that should be at the bedrock of who you are. The one thing in your life that you should strive the hardest to be really good at. Because you're special. And we don't get it. We dismiss this as why we are special. This can't be why I'm special. I have nothing to do with that. Exactly. Read verse 2 of Hebrews 12 again. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We are told to look to Jesus. We are told he's the author and the perfecter of our faith. We know that he endured the cross, despised the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. But what do you suppose? What do you suppose was the joy that was set before him? 
What do you think it was that caused him to endure the cross? It was you. Not the Father. He loved the Father and willingly obeyed him because he desired to bring glory to the Father. But his joy, his prize for running his race and finishing it perfectly, it was you. And that's what makes you special. And in case you're wondering what all this has to do with the Esau and Jacob dinner engagement. Just hang on. We're about to get there. Verses 3 and 4, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. What he's saying is when you face trials in this life, when you are hated by people, slandered because of your faith in God, when you are persecuted because of your unwavering loyalty to the one who has given you faith, Know that you have not yet resisted to the point of death. And that's not very comforting to us. We don't get that. We don't understand how we're supposed to get comfort from hearing that. We, we want to hear that our race is going to be on one of those automatic walking belts like found in the airports, or even better yet, like one of those carts that drive the people around in the airport terminals. That's, even, that's how we want our race to be. We want that kind of race, not a painful, hurting kind of race. Why are we supposed to feel good about enduring pain? Verses 5 through 11. Have you forgotten? Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Does that mean so little? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It's for discipline that you have to endure. For God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are an illegitimate child and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. And for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. And we so very often forget, quickly forget this truth, that we have been adopted by God into his family. And he, the trials that we have, the race that we're running, it is proof that he is sanctifying us, that we are part of his family. And then the author of Hebrews tells us why being adopted is so important. Why running our race is so important. Beginning in verse 12, he tells us, Therefore, lift your drooping hands, Strengthen your weak knees, make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. We are supposed to understand the importance of being found in God. And then, and then the author of Hebrews uses a positive action and a negative action as proof texts of whether or not we are in the family of God or not, whether or not we've been adopted or not. Ones that should terrify us. Because they explain the link between this chapter and chapter 25 of Genesis. 
he says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And then in verses 15 and 16, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. Do you understand why the author of Hebrews uses the Esau incident? Why he has it listed here? How, how he can tie this incident with failing to obtain the grace of God says that it's akin to the root of bitterness in a lost person's heart. How, how it, it's no different than those that claim to be Christian and a homosexual at the same time. The birthright was his identity. It was supposed to be the most important thing in his life. He was the firstborn son. He was the one who was identified with his father. And this should have been why he found value in his life. But instead, he found value in his life. Not in, in being identified with the father, but within himself. If Esau had valued the gift that had been bestowed upon him, the identification of being the same as the father, then he would have rather died than defiled that identification. And we don't understand how this, how does this equate to our life? How, how the author of Hebrews said that what Esau did was nothing short than heretical, blasphemous proof that he had not been given faith. He sold his birthright because he had not been given faith. Oh, he may have been acting morally, generally moral. He may have been a hard worker. Maybe he had some qualities that were admirable, but he never found value in the Father. And he was willing to sell his relationship with the Father for the things of this world. Saints, let me ask you, where do you find your value? What is it that you think defines you? What is the very essence of you? Which one of your abilities, your talents, your skills, your attributes, which is it that you say, this is the best of me? Is it your ability to cook, to manage, to build? Maybe it's your athletic ability. Maybe it's your ability to be nice and likable. But do you not understand that all those things, every single one of them, are all fleeting and fading away? And that you, just like Abraham, are in transition at this very moment. Do you not see that you're supposed to be very proud and very assured of why you are special? But not because of who you are or what you are, but because of whose you are. This is why Isaac had value, why Rebekah had value, why Jacob had value, and why we think so little of Esau. Esau was the better man of these twins. And even though he claimed to be of God, used the name of the Lord as his own, prayed to the Lord, he didn't find this, the title of son, as the most important thing in his life. And he, by his actions, he despised his birthright. What about us? 
What about me? Where do I find my value? Do I, by the way that I live my life, am I despising my birthright? Are my actions, are they pointing to the thing that I value most in life? There's another account of a man who despised his birthright, the office that he possessed, a man who didn't have faith and for this reason did not find his value in this life, in the author of life. His account is told to us in the New Testament, and his name was Judas. And even though he was chosen by Jesus to be with him, given the power to heal, to preach the gospel, he was sent out just like the rest of the disciples were, as told to us in Mark chapter 6, verse 7. And this should cause us alarm, because he wasn't just in ministry. He was in the real ministry. He saw the same miracles that the other disciples did. But in the end, he, like Esau, he despised his birthright, denied the master, the one that he claimed had purchased him. And he proved that he was not the joy that was set before Jesus. And he did this by selling Jesus out to the religious establishment for the things of the world. He was in the ministry with Jesus. His relationship to the one who he claimed was his all in all. And yet, and yet, Jesus was able to be traded for the things of this world. And Peter, Peter denied Christ three times at one night. And Jesus knew that that was going to happen just as he knew Judas was going to betray him. But there's a difference though. Because the one who Peter found value in, who made him valuable, he told Peter in Luke 22, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. Listen what made Peter different than Judas. I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers, verses 31 and 32, and this man, although he was assisted, although he did sell Christ out, and he cowered under the fear of man, he did repent, he did turn, and he did strengthen his brothers. But this doesn't mean that the fear of man had vanished in his life, because there was another time after being empowered for service that Peter cowered once again under the pressure of appeasing to the religious establishment. Sound familiar? And he did this by deciding not to have anything to do with the Gentile brothers when those who were of Jewish descent and claimed to be Christian came to him. Oh, but there was this man. There was this man who had his, the grace of God shown to him in his salvation, who has shown the horrible sinfulness of the murdering self that he was, how horrible he was, and he was given faith, he was given eyes to see that he was the joy that was set before Christ. And that man acted in love toward Peter, and he called him out for the coward and the liar that he was. And because of the love of Paul, Peter repented. And he proved 
that he had faith in following the Lord and not men. But saints, I want you to understand something. Paul didn't call Peter out because he was sinning against men. He called him out because he was being treasonous and acting like Esau. He was despising the one who he claimed to have given him a birthright and be called son. And Paul understood that each of us, each of us will demonstrate the value that you place on the faith that you have been given how much you value the being, the joy that is set before Christ, and how much you value Him. And you will know how much you value Him by what in your life you're willing to go along with that mocks Him. What you're willing to participate in that you know is not God-glorifying, or maybe just is seemingly okay but is being put on by an organization that doesn't have the glory of God at its very existence. Do you not see that when you do this, when I do this, that we are acting like Esau? Church, if we're serious about glorifying God in this body, if we desire to bring glory to him, then we must be willing to stand for the one that we say that we desire to bring glory to, which means that we should be completely unwilling to go along with fun activities or seemingly innocuous things that are being put on by people that mock the one that we say died for us. We should be like Paul. We should be willing to challenge those that use the name of Christ as their own and then go along with false worship. And especially those that lead in this so-called false worship. And Peter, having been given faith, knowing that he was the joy that was set before Christ, he knew that there would be Esau's among us. Those that claim that name, that honored position of Christian, but who by their willingness to sell him out for human accolades, awards of this world, a position, money. They prove, they prove that they are not the joy that was set before him. Peter told us, false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon them. 2 Peter 2, 1 and 2. Saints, that account of Jacob and Esau at the lunch encounter on that day, it's not just some random, fa random factoid that's given to us for our amusement. It's not given to us in order that we can know something more about the personalities of the men. It is given to us to highlight why, why Jacob was special and why Esau was not. 
because Esau despised the birthright of the father. Jacob wasn't a nice guy, but he was the joy that was set before Christ. And this is what made him special. This is why he had true value. Does being the joy that was set before Jesus, does the fact that he suffered specifically for you, specifically, that he purchased you off the auction block, not you, but you, Does the truth that he endured the cross, despised the shame, does this not matter? How can anything else matter? If you are the joy that was set before him, and if you are regenerate, If you are saved, then you are his joy, and you need to own that. It doesn't matter how you feel. How can anything else in life matter? Because this is what makes you special. Saints, let's determine that we will not despise our birthright. That we will not mock our Savior by going along with things that we know are not right. Let's pray.